and welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, conditions that describe the United States for the past 600 years for people of color. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm based in Oakland, California. Greetings. I am Vahisha Hassan, and I am based in Memphis, Tennessee. So this is our first uh, week of Lent the, for our podcast, and this is a time when Christians journey with Jesus toward his execution by the state that was aided and abetted by religious leaders on Good Friday. So we recognize that Jesus is still being crucified daily in black and brown bodies. That's why we are dedicating this Lenten season to thinking together about how we can dismantle white supremacy. Each week, we'll be gathering a different group of theologians, writers, movement activists, and folks and thinkers to discuss the lectionary scriptures with that task in mind. So welcome to the conversation. Today, we are joined by Jonathan Bryson. Earl Fisher, Carol Robeson, Robison, excuse me, <laughs> Helen Ride, and David Telford. We will be discussing the lectionary text for uh, Sunday, February 18th. All right, so for our discussion today, we're going to cover two aspects. We want to hear from each contributor of our Lincoln devotional what led them, what led you to pick and choose the week that you chose, the specific scripture that you chose. Uh, please be clear and tell us what scripture that was, uh, kind of a brief summary of what you talked about and what led you there. We are going to start with Jonathan Bryson. Okay, so... In all honesty, I chose the scripture because uh, it was all that was available at the time. <laughs> and so um, I really didn't, I really didn't have a, I guess, kind of impetus behind it other than that. Uh, but when I got into it, I was pleasantly surprised. Um, I initially started out looking at all of the scriptures and the first scripture was Genesis nine, eight, 17. I actually uh, fleshed it out to actually be Genesis nine, eight, 17 and first Peter, uh, let me get it here. first Peter three, 18 and 22. And so what I saw as uh, being a theme that linked all of those scriptures was the, the, the theme of opportunity. Um, and even in studying these scriptures, even in looking at them for, for this particular week in Lent, um, what emerged first was that, you know, the entire biblical narrative can be understood as opportunity off. Um, and when you talk about uh, what, is, what is the net gain for dismantling something like white supremacy, all we want as marginalized people is the opportunity to, you know, stand and fall on our own merits, not be prejudged, not be, uh, 
uh, marginalized uh, for, you know, just arbitrary reasons. You know, we, we want the same opportunities that everyone else has afforded to them. And so I saw in this text, in Genesis, um, just that theme of opportunity. You look at Genesis and, you know, Noah was given the opportunity to build an ark. He certainly didn't have to, he certainly didn't have to comply, but he chose to comply. And as a result of compliance um, and capitalizing on that opportunity, um, he made it through the storm. And as a result of making it through the storm, he was rewarded with a covenant, um, a covenant of peace. Um, and that covenant, uh, by virtue of his obedience, was was extended to all of creation. And so just by capitalizing on opportunity, we not only benefit ourselves, but we benefit, you know, the world around us. And so first Peter was saying the same thing here. We have Christ offered as this opportunity, this opportunity to, um, you know, to enter into salvation, enter into salvation and enter into eternity and be this, uh, this body of, of, of believers. And so uh, again, you know, the opportunity can be accepted or it can be declined. Um, but the opportunity is given in light of an evil uh, known as sin. I mean, uh, the only reason opportunity is necessary is needed is because this this evil paradigm known as sin or the fall, however you choose to frame it, uh, exists. And so it's about capitalizing on an opportunity, whether that opportunity comes under the best of circumstances or whether the opportunity comes under the worst of circumstances. What are you going to do um, when it's offered to you? And so we as believers have gathered here to say, you know, we've, we've accepted that opportunity and look at what's happening as a result of it. We have this podcast, we have this dialogue, we have people doing great work in all of these places and the world is benefiting from us accepting that, uh, that opportunity. So that's why I went with the, uh, with the scriptures. So opportunity. I love, I love that. Thank you. Thank you very much mm-hmm. for even uh, fleshing that out. And next we will hear from Earl Fisher. Well, thanks, and it's a gift to be a part of this wonderful project with so many wonderful people. And I believe I'm entitled or enticed to say, but he should assign me my scripture. <laughs> well, no, that may not necessarily be true. <laughs> but in our discussion, I, I do recall at some point, um, unbeknownst to me, me ending up picking like the first one, the first mm-hmm. week. And, and um out of all of those passages that were available during that particular time period, the gospels are always something I try to lean into because I think they more adequate, they more adequately represent the type of uh, black liberation theology that I want to try to promote and practice. But also uh, I have been intrigued by this Mark text of Jesus's baptism for several years. So of course I was drawn uh, to it. And um, from my vantage point, Jesus is being baptized into the prophetic tradition, which is something that I've also tried to uh, practice myself. And as a result of um, my entry, one of the things that continued to stick out for me out of all of those script, out of all of those particular verses, uh, verse 12, talking about a spirit that pushes Jesus into the wilderness or into the wild. And looking at that particular passage from the message translation, it, it lets the reader know that this is the same spirit that descended on Jesus like a dove during the baptism. And I think that we are living in a context and in a culture, and especially in a country, that tries to commodify uh, Christianity in such a way 
that we tend to erase the realities of the wilderness experience. And so I wanted to lean into some of that. It makes me think about a lot of what's happening in Memphis when you start thinking about the ways in which the prophet King, who was slain in this great city, uh, he has been reduced to a soundbite and is being appropriated to try to conduct economic affairs. Those who've mm-hmm. seen the Dodge Ram commercial last night on the Super Listen. Bowl that I was protesting, um, seeing that King <laughs> voice and uh, even his message uh, is something that is being misappropriated to try to advance certain narratives and stuff like that. And so many of us in, in the Christian faith and so many of us on the spiritual journey have bought into this myth that our lives are somehow, by proxy to Jesus, a get-out-of-hell-free card when this particular passage is trying to articulate and express for us the realities of uh, what it means for us to have to deal with wilderness conditions and experiences. And instead of us blaming the devil or the enemy or Satan, uh, sometimes it is the spirit It is the same spirit that descends like a dove at a baptism. It's that same spirit that pushes us into some wilderness conditions and ultimately guides us through it and and pulls us out on the other side. Well said, well well said. And to put it in context, uh, this podcast is being taped the morning after the Super Bowl that I also did not watch. Now, part of that was because I was sitting here trying to put the devotional together, but, <laughs> but, but more so than anything that I, it was, I, I have watched the Super Bowl every year of my adult and probably youth life. And, and I just, and I just did not, but I did see some commentary on Facebook where people were like, Whoa, what just happened? So, and people were trying to figure out whether it was shade being thrown or like, or, or, you know, or whether it was really trying to come from some kind of liberation voice, but I have my doubts and critiques about that. All right. Thank you so much again, Earl. So next we will have Carol Robinson. Am I saying that correctly? You can unmute yourself and uh, still can't hear you yet, Carol. You're, you're still muted. No worries. Breathe. Take your time. There we go. Can you hear me now? I can hear you. So tell us what led you. Yes. Tell us what led you to your particular scripture and what that was. Well, the boring answer is that I have a lot of work coming up, and I knew this podcast was going to be today, and this is the only time I have an hour in the whole Lenten time to uh, do this. But but I I picked the Mark scripture as well. Um, I was really interested in the temptations of of Jesus and um, that Jesus has offered material goods, political power, and institutional religious domination, and in our current context – we are also lured away from our dependence on God and our reliance of God to um, towards stockpiling wealth and exploiting people in the name of Christianity, in the in name of imperial Christianity that we see happening now. Um, so that really interested me, especially in the light of the sin of reliance on safety, outside safety as, as a white woman that I have been, um, lured into that I need, I'm somehow weak and need to be like protected from people of color through like violent police forces. When in reality, the major cause of violent death against white women is domestic violence. 
And so it's usually white men who are perpetuating that violence. And in my own personal experience, I was, as you will see in my piece, when I was 18 years old, I was detained at the U.S. border. I lived on the border one night and sexually assaulted by six U.S. Border Patrol officers. And that made me hyper-concerned with my own personal safety and unable to like stand in solidarity for a really long time with my black brothers and sisters who were being murdered by the police. And that was also kept me bound. So that that's the... The, the context for this, the personal context. What what do we see in Oakland? God, what can I say? I mean, Oakland hey, just is a, a second. Well, first, first, we're just on the what what led you to the scripture. So we'll do that on the second round. Okay. Oh, second round. Okay. Great. Yes. That's. I think that's enough for now. Okay. Thanks. Thank you so much, and I, I thoroughly agree with you. Uh, uh, I, I I teach uh, in a theological setting, and we went through some some historical um, African American based theological based things and people were really surprised of the narrative and how we bear the narrative that as black and brown people we are violent and we uh, we we perpetrate all of these crimes but as we walk through history it is very clear that the consistent perpetra- perpetrator of violence is white men period like period and it's just amazing how that narrative is able to be um, overwritten yeah, and that speaks to a power analysis and where those narratives come from. All right, thank you so much, Carol. Mm-hmm. Next, we will have Helen. Hi. So um, I'm not a theologian. <laughs> I, I discern that I'm among people who are probably more biblically literate than I. Um, so I, I chose the Old Testament passages because... Um, because I felt like they spoke to the potential of um, change and shift, and they 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 didn't they don't leave us where we were f- where we were found. So, as a white person who is I would consider myself still pretty early in my journey of understanding um, understanding white supremacy, understanding my um, understanding white privilege, understanding the ways I should find my voice to combat white supremacy and speak up and, um, and do those things. It spoke to me because it, it felt like this was a place where there was, um, God was talking about a new way of doing things and not leaving us where we, uh, where we landed or, or at, at the place of revelation and uh, understanding, but especially in the Psalm, taking us and leading us into a new, a new better uh, zone. So um, I think what can happen often um, for now, naturally, not naturally, but sadly it is a factor of my whiteness that I even get the privilege to even take that journey in my own time. Right. That's part of the problem. Um, But it, it talks about, um, us being able to move on from a place of shame and um, find a voice and speak out and and take action and that's that's kind of what led me um, to the psalm and to because I think that's not an uncommon state for people even progressive white people who would want to do the right thing maybe um, but find themselves um, lacking the words or lacking the the knowledge to know what to do. 
um, that there's a there's a path through that to um, to a better place, a place where we can be more effective in in the work that needs to be done. Um, so that's that's why I went with Psalms and the Genesis story. I appreciate that. Thank you for sharing, Helena. I would agree and, and say that there is a calling calling there as well as, uh, you know, progressive everything, whether that's political mm. or, or religious based, that is a spectrum mm. <laughs> um, that people can find themselves on. And I think even, even the most progressive of folks still need to have a heart to learn, have a mm. mind that is open and, 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 and try to walk through that in a way that's genuine to them but leans mm. into some tension and some discomfort and it's going to take that to, to, to arrive. And so mm. that, that you, you, you spelled that out really well in, in your uh, contribution and your submission. And I hope that, I hope that people can find their voice in your voice as well. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, last, you're welcome. You're welcome. Last, but uh, not least is David. Telfort. Yes. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, so, the passage that I chose to uh, engage uh, with is uh, Genesis uh, chapter 16, verses 7 to 15. Um, and uh, it is uh, the moment where um, Hagar, uh, a, a woman who has been mislabeled a slave, um, runs away uh, from Sarai and Abram um, after, um, because of cultural norms of that time, um, her body has been offered up. Uh, to Abram uh, in order to bear a child um, that, according to that time, would belong to Sarai. Um, you know, I think that Lent is an opportunity for us to uh, engage in some pretty, uh, you know, phenomenal spiritual practices that have socio-political implications. Um, so, uh, aside from some of the reasons that we've been, uh, you know, giving in terms of, um, you know, this first week uh, working for us, I was glad to engage with this passage that has. Um, stretched me and challenged me, especially the work of Dolores S. Williams, Sisters in the Wilderness, um, really completely transformed how I viewed this text. Um, I think that the Hebrew scriptures usually uh, invite us uh, to do some midrash and some wrestling with God and some wrestling with one another in terms of where God can be found uh, in the text. Um, you know, I wrote about... Um, this moment in the text where Hagar runs away from Sarai and Abram, she goes out into the wilderness. Um, and it's this incredible moment uh, that a lot of uh, people of faith and theologians write about where Hagar um, names God for the first time. Um, you know, God seems to, you know, to see Hagar in the wilderness. Uh, but then there's this peculiar instruction for Hagar to go back. Uh, to go back into the arms of Sarai, to go back into this oppressive system um, that, you know, she was uh, brought up in. Um, and, you know, if Lent is an opportunity for us to imagine something different and to journey with Jesus down a revolutionary road, um, I thought that it was appropriate for us to interrogate this moment where she is told to go back. Um, and, you know, I think that that is something that uh, really helped to, to frame um, how I view uh, you know, the invitation for us to go back to some narratives, um, uh, especially narratives that uh, certain administration, you know, administrations and 45 would like us to go back to, uh, policies that, um, 
we are invited to go back to uh, in order to um, to set our world back in a particular time. Um, and so um, I end the piece, uh, you know, with this line, when they tell us to go back, don't. Um, because I think that if a prophetic ministry is rooted not only in analyzing what is wrong, but imagining a new future, uh, we can't go back. Um, um, and so I think that's what the text invites us to wrestle with. And wrestle, wrestle indeed. For those uh, listening, watching to the podcast, this this piece really struck me uh, in a lot of ways. For that reason, I think partly uh, being female, and it seemed it seemed almost a womanist approach <laughs> uh, to to the text. And it, it it was it was like how like how do you, as you said, wrestle with this call to go back? And you said no. Let me tell you. Let me tell you what we're not gonna do in some you know black vernacular like let me tell you what we're not gonna do we're not going back right I mean, the, with the with the rosa park shirts that just say nah like <laughs> like this is this is not what's right. happening and i think i think that puts it directly in terms of a resistance place it uh combats the message to make america great again because that the context of that again says let's go back that is a call to go back and so how do we how do we navigate uh, a faith in a God that would tell the marginalized or the, or the supposedly enslaved the way it was put to go back. And we like, nah, Rosa Parks out. Like it's not, that's, that's not what we're going to do. And I thought you, you navigated that really, really well and laid it out. I had a moment in my office while I was editing. <laughs> I just had to, both, <laughs> both, no, seriously, both Nicola and I were like, <laughs> just like gone. Um, uh, yeah, I printed it out. It's on my bulletin board, like right now in my office. Because uh, I think I think I need. It is almost like a pep rally for me to 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 to, to remind me that it's okay to not go back. That, that it's okay. Right. So thank you, thank you very very much. Um, I just wanted to quickly put a little context. We're going to move to where you are in the world, where you are positioned uh, locally, and, and and maybe regionally even, and put that in a context of. Uh, based on your submission, based on the themes that you brought out, how does that speak to what is happening locally where you are, right? And then uh, speak to the needs of where you are, but also maybe speak to what is being done locally to combat that needs. I think a lot of times just from a, you know, practice colonization that even the most beautiful progressive heart is like, oh, let me go in here and fix all of this, Right. So let's talk about what's being done. And, and definitely if there's, um, you have examples of black and brown led efforts to combat what, it, what is happening in our world. So we want to talk about that. As we transition, I just want to say to put that context in there that I met Helen uh, at, uh, it was at the Methodist Women uh, in Charlotte. They came on this big bus <laughs> and we did this really huge um, really, really great uh, protest of resistance um, that ended up coinciding with the um, the mandate that came out about whether who could travel. So then we ended up protesting that day and then meeting us again to protest that night at the airport at Charlotte Douglas Airport in Charlotte, North Carolina. So it was a pleasure to meet you that way. David, we met at Princeton Theological Seminary at uh, the Black Theological yep, yep. Leadership yeah, Black Theological Leadership Institute, which we will refer to as BTLI. We were class uh, fellows, mm -hmm. class of 2016, and it was life changing and altering for me. And um, you can speak to that mm -hmm. at some point. Um, Jonathan, 
we met in seminary. We went to Gardner Webb Divinity together, and we raised some ruckus up in there too. <laughs> and I think we, um, I think we. Y'all a bunch of hell raisers, man. Listen, listen. We ain't going back, yo. So, <laughs> and we use it in our voice. Right, and I think right. we consistently do that, and that's part of why we called on your voices for this devotional. Yeah, seriously. And I, I, I'm, and Earl, I know you're not talking. Like, <laughs> I don't even understand. Like, if y'all, y'all, if y'all Google or Facebook anything at all about Memphis and resistance, you will see Earl's face. Like, period. He, whether he's holding the mic or standing beside, like, like he is going to be there. So, and that's the context that I met him. I think it was one of the um, uh, resistance moments at the statue that was taken down. Um, and that was my first sighting of Earl. I've been here six whole months, maybe seven months. And I was like, oh, I guess I need to get to meet that brother. And also, Michael McBride, um, he found out that I was moving here. And he said, from California. He was like, oh, you're in Memphis? He was like, oh, I need to connect you with Earl Fisher. And I was like, already done, yo. Already done. <laughs> so you are well known for your resistance work, and I appreciate that. Carol, appreciate I haven't you. had the pleasure to meet you, but maybe if Nicola speaks to how um, how she met you, is is she okay, Nicola? I'm sorry for your pronouncing. Yes, she okay. and her is fine. Thank you. Um, yeah, Carol and I go back a bunch of years now and um, have on occasion been arrested together, um, standing up for, for example, the Black Friday 14, um, who were facing charges after shutting down BART right after, um, right after uh, several um, shootings of unarmed black men. Um, so yeah, <laughs> definitely has the movement credentials um, and I'm so grateful to also call her my housemate. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful yeah. to get to know you in this context, Carol. And yeah, likewise. I completely plan to come to California, so we will. Be- oh, yeah. Yeah, you've got to come. All yeah. Right. Awesome. I want to okay. say, first, um, I'm in Oakland, California. In fact, Nicolin is in on the other side of a wall in another room <laughs> in the same <laughs> Um, in East Oakland and I want to say first I've been really like touched and like inspired and moved by what everyone has said so far um, yeah Oakland what can I what can I say I mean it's rapidly rapidly gentrifying here um, and so you see building going on everywhere at the same time people are being coming displaced and those people are mostly people of color you there's 2700 people at any one given night on the street in Oakland and they're heavily mm. heavily policed and um and and the police force here is mostly from outside of Oakland and come in to police our people in in oh, Oakland wow. so that's a scary in of itself and we have a sheriff who is the creator of Urban Shield which is a yearly weapons expo and war games uh, for the police to go in. And the, and the objects of the, the, the people on the other side of the war are people of color, where they're shooting targets and buying massive weapons. We, so there's a lot to stand up against here in mm-hmm. Oakland. So, um, and the good news is there's a lot of people on the ground doing really, really good work. And we are in a huge church at the corner where things are gentrifying really quickly. And um, some people in our church are working on public lands policy. There's a particular person 
<clears throat> who is uh, trying to make sure that public land goes for affordable housing instead of for development. So they're working on displacement in that end of it. There's a group called the Anti-Police Terror Project, which we have been, both Nicola and I have been lucky to work under, which is a person of color, black-led organization um, by Kat Brooks and Terha Ock, who um, work on police terror in our area and on a lot of different levels. And I won't spend a lot of time on that, but um, we've been lucky to go out on actions at their request um, because we're part of also a, a direct action group called a Christian direct action group called second acts. So, and we do, um, so we, we go out and, you know, cause some trouble on that end. Um, there's also a, we're also part of a group called the interfaith for black lives group. And um, we're, and we've been working on dismantling urban shield, the group that, we talked about. In fact, Nicola was involved with some of these folks um, to get Urban Shield kicked out of Oakland because that's where we used to have it, but it just got pushed out to an East County. And but we've been in actions involved with around that, dismantling that. So there's a lot happening um, on a lot of different levels here in Oakland. Um, but yeah, there's a wave. There's a wave of people coming in here, and they're and they rely on the police. They're white people. Got you. And that's, and that's probably what gentrification does mm. if people mm -hmm. move into an area that is transitioning in some economic way uh, mm. and decide that it is unsafe for them, but right. was but was fine for the folks uh, who originally lived there. So thank you for speaking to that. And I hear I hear in that both both the needs in your area, but also what is being done to combat those things. And I do hear an intersection of, of faith and justice work being done so i that i appreciate that greatly anyone on the podcast would like to more information about that we'll have resourcing available would like to support in any way and whether that's monetary support or your local in that area come and connect with the people who are doing this work on the ground that is excellent thank you thank you, thank you. next if we can have um, jonathan if you'll tell us what your actual context is and how it relates to the themes that you brought out in your submission what's happening in your particular area and what's being done to, to, to meet that resistance need. Okay, so, so I'm in Gastonia, uh, North Carolina, and as my submission pointed out, um, North Carolina is ground zero for voter suppression. Um, we have had uh, basically a full-on assault on the state constitution and actually uh, by default the uh, federal mandates um, that are covered under the Voting Rights Act and in fact the Civil Rights Act. And so um, where we're at uh, locally, I guess I'll start locally, um, you know, in the wake of 2016, what I'd hoped to see was an increase in voter registration. Um, and we did see some, uh, my fraternity, uh, Alpha Phi Alpha, we have an ongoing uh, you just program. Made day. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, carry Okay, on. okay, a, a voteless people <laughs> is a hopeless people, which originated um, in Charlotte, in your hometown. Um, that initiative uh, uh, started there, but it, was, it has always been focused on um, emphasizing the importance of voting. And as I noted, voting is the Achilles heel of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. When you boil it all down, at the end of the day, 
what what white supremacists and what institutional racists have have historically targeted is the right to vote. The violence that we see is targeted at scaring people away from the ballot, the ballot box. So if if voting carries that much uh, inherent power, then I feel like as the people who are directly impacted by uh, white supremacy and by white supremacist use of this very legal uh, means of, of change, then we should appropriate that. I, I heard, um, in fact, I think it was Earl was talking about misappropriation. Um, mm-hmm. Christianity has a long history of oh. appropriation. I mean, we, oh. we appropriated some holidays oh. and now everybody thinks they started with us, but uh, as, as people of color, as, as marginalized people, we need to appropriate some strategies. Um, and these strategies are not uh, counter to to uh, success for us. These strategies, in fact, have been proven by our oppressors to work. Now, we're not talking violence. We're talking about things like, you know, capitalizing economic opportunity, capitalizing on voter opportunity. So, so all of that starts with education. So what we try to do, um, you've got the Democratic Party here in Gaston County. You've got you've got a lot of independent work going on. You've got people who just say, you know what, I don't have time to uh, decide whether or not we can go out and do voter registration as a group. So I'll go out and do it as an individual. And so what you see is you see a lot of people taking the initiative to get people signed up to make people make sure people are registered. Well, I would encourage us to go a step further is in voter education, because one of the things we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to focus on D.C., and mm-hmm. to act as yeah. if nothing else exists outside of D.C., when in fact the policies that impact us most are the local policies. Taxation, for example. When we talk about gentrification, one of the, one of the main uh, avenues for displacement of, of uh, poor people out of these neighborhoods that are being gentrified is through taxation. You displace through increasing rent. Um, for the people who are renting and for the people who own homes, you increase through taxation. And so we need to we need to educate people about how important it is to be aware of how far and how wide the vote goes um, in terms of the sheriff, the, the sheriff in Oakland. I mean, he's an elected official. So, you know, the implications of that are that if if enough people get together and say, hey, we don't we don't want these expos where we're the targets and they go to the polls, this guy's gone. And so, and so we have to vote intelligently and strategically. And so what's interesting in North Carolina is that prior to 16, North Carolina was split into basically thirds. You had a third of the state that was independent. You had a third of the state that was Republican. And you had a third of the state that was roughly Democrat. Now, those numbers lined up to somewhere around like 1.5 million independents, 1.7 or 1.9 million Republicans and 2.1 million Democrats. Well, after 16, a shift took place, and now independent voters outnumber Republican voters. So the, 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 the ramifications of that are far-reaching because mm-hmm. these are people who can vote in either primary. These are people who can strategically swing elections in favor of or against. And so we need to be a part of that conversation. That is, you know, voting to me, and, and when um, 
David talked about not going back. One of the things that we that we want to get back to is that passion that said this thing is so important that I'm willing to go into the wilderness and get bitten by dogs, get get beaten, get hosed, get whatever gets thrown at me in order to make sure that those after me and those that I'm with now have an understanding of how important this thing is. And so I think we've, we've somehow gotten away from that. I think, I think we've adopted this, especially when I talk to people in the, in the field and I'm registering, it's like, well, they're going to do what they want to do anyway. My vote doesn't matter. You know, voter apathy is our Achilles here. Um, you know, voter turnout among blacks declined uh, to its lowest point in 20 years in, in what was one of the most pivotal U.S. presidential elections in history. I mean, that alone should should just just let us know something's wrong and we need mm-hmm. to we need to focus. We need to focus there. So efforts here again, like I said, a lot of individual efforts um, and and sadly, um, getting leadership, getting black and brown leadership on the same page and getting them motivated here. Now, I don't know how it is in other parts of, of the country. I've seen some things, but I know um, I just had a meeting Saturday where I was approached by white members of the local NAACP who were expressing um, dissatisfaction at the fact that they felt like black leadership was not doing enough. <laughs> um, you know, like, and, and so, and I didn't even know going into the meeting that that's what the meeting was going to be about. And so I'm sitting here and I'm, I'm seeing this white contingency in the, in the local NAACP say, we want to see the NAACP stand up and get the statue taken down at the courthouse and get, uh, and make a vocal, uh, condemnation of the swastika that went up on the, um, place of worship that that is open to all people um and so and so the fact that the leadership has not responded has actually resulted in sort of a tension where they're saying okay well you know what are you what are you going to do i mean are you condoning this are we practicing a policy of appeasement what's what's going on so and so you know we, we have some issues to work through but at the end of the day uh if we can just educate uh, people, as many people as we can on how far and how wide voting uh, resonates and teach people to, to, to vote intelligently and strategically most important, to vote strategically to use that vote like it's your last couple chips in Vegas you know, I mean, right. you know, and to know how to make that thing work for you and I think we'll see some, I think we'll see some, some rapid change do Ooh, wait, can I, can I please, please, please take you back? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Thanks. I, 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 I didn't know if y'all had a particular order, but so much of what Jonathan just laid out, my dear alpha brother, Mr. Oh, six. <laughs> so, so, much, so much of what he laid out could just be easily translated and rearticulated with regards to Memphis Bahisha. You know this very well. So much so that a lot of my personal initiatives since MLK Day 2018, which officially launched what is being referred to as MLK 50, which are the days and the events that are leading up to the 50th commemoration of the assassination of Dr. King. My personal contribution in that particular litany has been around 
voter empowerment. So to Jonathan's point again, when you start thinking about the ways in which our society is structured and how many white supremacist policies have been put on the books, and I mean since the founding of the country, but in very nuanced ways in the past 50 years, whereby now scholars are suggesting that voters are more suppressed today than they were in 68. So I felt like it would be uh, only a wonderful testament to King's legacy and his sacrifice to say this is something that we can organize uh, around the city and the county. So we have put together what is being called the Memphis and Shelby County Voter Collaborative. The National Civil Rights Museum just endorsed us the other day and has signed on. We have been getting and reaching out to so many uh, organizations and individuals who have been doing activism and organizing over the past several years in the city of Memphis around social justice and black liberation. So I had to piggyback on Bryson, on, on, on Jonathan's piece about that. And I think it is aligned with some of what you hear me trying to articulate in my reflection. Uh, I recently went back and added this particular statement in this paragraph uh, the other night where I said to effectively minister to those in need, mm. those who are more intimate with wilderness conditions that are created by those who care more about profit than people and more about greed than God. We mm. must know for ourselves what wilderness life is like. And so I think what I'm mm. trying to lean into is not only what's happening around the country, but in particular, what's happening in Memphis, where we have 44% of our children living in poverty, 26% of our population in general under the poverty limit. And a lot of this policy, a lot of this poverty is a byproduct of exploitative policy. And the only way you're going to get the conditions changed, or as I told my dear sister Wendy Thomas, who was the uh, editor of the MLK 50 Justice and Journalism website and project, I told her several years ago, if we want to maximize our social justice initiatives in a country and in a state and in a city of laws, you're going to have to get some policy support. And the only way you're going to get that policy support is if people are not just registered to vote, as Jonathan was pointing out, they have to be educated and engaged and empowered so that when they go to the voting booth, they know exactly how what is happening there impacts what's happening in their living room. So we are committed to substantially increasing the voter turnout in 2018, 2019, and 2020. Because just like in 68, the decisions that are going to be made, whether it be in D.C., or whether it be in Tennessee at the State House in Nashville, or whether it be a city hall locally, the decisions that are being made in the next two and three years are going to set the trajectory of what life is going to be yeah. like in this country and in our counties and our states and cities for the next 10, 15, 20, and 30 years. We're seeing judges be appointed. We're seeing discussions take place with regards to living wages and whether or not people are going to be able to not just work, but make a living off of their labor. And so it is vitally important for us to do that. And I wanted to lean into that and also highlight, you know, subversively, of course, because I didn't call any names, some of the wonderful work that has been going on here in Memphis. And Vahisha talked earlier about us being able to organize coalitions under the leadership of Sister Tammy Sawyer and take them down 901. We got the racist relics that we know as uh, statues of Nathan Bedford Forrest and Jefferson Davis removed. There have been some wonderful organizational efforts around all manner of 
uh, social justice activism from bail reform with the official Black Lives Matter Memphis chapter, from you know, voting rights, you heard me talk about that piece. It's just too much for me to name, actually. And so that inspires me, and it reminds me that, indeed, when we face these uh, wilderness-like conditions, it's not always some um, byproduct of poor decisions that we've made or something that the uh, enemy has constructed or cultivated. It is oftentimes God the spirit of God, the same spirit that shows up at a baptism or at a time of affirmation, pushing us into these spaces and into these conditions and also sending angels to minister to us while we're there. Mm -hmm. I mean, just completely well said. Uh, we have uh, two more folks to, to weigh in uh, in their context, but I just want to add that while I was in North Carolina and I am a native of Charlotte, North Carolina and Living in Asheville for a couple of years, I worked with Democracy North Carolina, which was a bipartisan effort to to educate. So both to you, uh, Jonathan and, and Earl, to do pure education. And and it was amazing to me what was known and not known in the state. Mm -hmm. And we, we made a point to do a lot of rural organizing as well as, you know, the heavily populated counties that tend to swing uh, the vote. And we found because we were able to come into a space nonpartisan, we were able to connect dots for lots of, like, to your point of independents, Republicans, and Democrats that had like-minded issues, but were either voting against their interests or um, because either they were one-issue voters, faith folk, and <laughs> faith folk were largely one-issue voters and voting against their issues, and then you had um, class level folk, like different classes uh, of folk and specifically poor people voting against their interests because they're being told these messages and narratives that, that, don't, that don't, don't help them. And only when things continue to hurt them, it was like, oh, I didn't know. And to get into how people are elected versus appointed, and you still got to elect the people who then will appoint other people. That's right. So like all That's of right. these Absolutely are so right. connected. And so it's like, how, how do we do enough education to combat the apathy? Because the, for me, the, the major product, the major result, you have an equation on the other side of that equal sign. Voter suppression is largely not just policy-based to get you to not vote, you know, to vote the wrong way, but also just to, to think that your vote so doesn't count that you mm -hmm. don't vote that you don't vote. So all of these efforts are to get you to not vote, not just to take away your means to do so, to make it also not easy, but to just be like, yeah, this is, so we have education in the wrong areas, <laughs> almost. Like, we're being educated, and that's some, one of the things that ultimately they said, we're being educated, but is, is, is this the narrative that serves us? So yeah, I think that I think that that is the echo of Carter G. Woodson and my dear sister Lauren Hill, who talks about the miseducation, miseducation. of us Negroes. Mm -hmm. Listen, the miseducation, the mis and, and now this miseducation of well, not now, but this miseducation goes across everyone because we have white folks miseducated on how their needs are going to be met, and they think that oppressing other people is going to do that, or they think that suppressing other people is going to do that. And that's a miseducation for them. So collective liberation means we all need to get free. And that is by lifting all of us up. But that also means the, the most the most marginalized, the, post, the people reaping on the outside of the, the field, you got to bring those in. And I, let's, whew, okay, so let's go to, <laughs> let's go to, um, to let's, let's do uh, David. 
and then we'll um, close with Helen. Is that okay? Um, yeah, so a little bit about my context. So um, I get to serve uh, the, the Lafayette Avenue Presbyterian Church um, in Fort Greene, Brooklyn. Um, and Fort Greene, Brooklyn, um, it sounds like a lot of us uh, know a little bit about gentrification um, uh, as well. It's, um, and, and I resonate a lot with what Carol, um, you know, expressed uh, in, in her context setting. Um, you know, Fort Green has arguably been gentrifying since uh, the 1980s. Uh, um, I'm, a, I'm a Brooklyn native, um, and you know, um, the the Brooklyn that I grew up with, and um, you know, and knew in the 90s and the 2000s, uh, uh, is is pretty much gone. Um, and where where my church sits um, is pretty much a stone's throw away. Um, from the Atlantic Yards project, which brought to downtown Brooklyn the Barclays Center, where the Brooklyn Nets um, uh, played, um, and there was a lot of displacement that happened there, um, a lot of uh, transformation of that landscape, um, and a lot of rezoning that happened in neighborhoods um, that allowed for um, these massive high rises, um, not only for office space, but a lot of residential spaces that um, changed uh, the incomes that were coming, uh, you know, into Brooklyn, but really changed the fabric of neighborhoods, uh, neighborhoods that had been largely black and Afro-Caribbean, um, you know, people of color built those neighborhoods, um, um, and now more and more. Um, they are being pushed out um, and, and put into different different boroughs simply because they can't afford to live there anymore. Um, so, so my church sits in the middle of that, um, and I serve a multicultural con uh, a congregation that even though it's largely black, um, there, there are more and more Sundays, um, and, I'm, you know, and I'm relatively new there. I've only been there for about five months. Um, every single Sunday, we are seeing um, both the folks who have been displaced show up to worship, worshiping alongside those uh, who are doing the gentrifying and changing the fabric of the neighborhood. Um, so as I was writing my piece um, about, you know, uh, you know, when they tell us to go back, um, I was really thinking about what it means uh, for, um, for a movement that really is coalition based uh, to come together, um, you know, in order to continue uh, to speak out against, uh, you know, housing projects that continue, uh, you know, to come to our doors, um, zoning projects that want to rezone particular areas in order to get permission uh, to put up residential buildings. Uh, these are fights and these are um, conversations that are still happening today. Um, and one of the things that continues to, to happen in, in, in many spaces is that um, you know, folks think back to, you know, to the early 2000s, uh, you know, when the Atlantic Yards project happened um, and, you know, and they saw as much organizing went into it, as much, you know, blood, sweat and tears went into it. Uh, the stadium still went up, you know, uh, you know, those buildings still went up. Um, and, you know, there is there is fatigue that's there. There's grief that's there. There's lament that's there. Um, and um, one of the things that, you know, is on us, I think, um, as people of faith and especially those of us who, um, you know, are called to pastor, um, you know, is to really be able um, to speak a word of imagination and uh, a word of power in the face of those narratives. Um, you know, I am intimately aware 
um, that there is bias that is um, operating in the biblical text, right? Uh, just oh, yeah. because it's been canonized and just because it's been passed down to us doesn't mean um, that there weren't um, systems that were behind the cultivation of those texts. So I think that um, the call for Hagar to go back to the system that was oppressing her um, had a purpose and it served a right. function. Um, and in the same way, um, this narrative that we cannot uh, reclaim our neighborhoods, um, that we have no power when we go to the negotiating table um, with large building, um, you know, corporations, uh, that's a narrative that has been passed down. Uh, it's a narrative that's been canonized by policies and by um, mm-hmm. officials. Um, and um, I, you know, uh, and I refuse to believe it. So uh, there are organizations already on the ground doing this work. Um, there's East Brooklyn congregations, uh, a large coalition of different uh, institutions of faith. Um, faith in New York is a similar organization. But there are also uh, community boards. Uh, so there are local, um, you know, housing projects and neighborhoods that have teamed together and have, um, you know, neighborhood-led leaders uh, who, you know, who, who, who come to the forefront and speak out against these housing projects when they, you know, when they happen. Um, so there's work happening on the ground. I think that uh, one of the challenges that I see for us and kind of where the next step needs to be um, taken is, most of the new residents who are coming into Fort Greene don't see um, how it's their problem as well, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, Bahisha, you were talking about that, you know, you know, uh, we can't be free until everybody's free. And I think that, you know, um, it's, it's the work of critical race theorists like Derek Bell, who teaches about interest convergence um, that really is going to be, um, you know, uh, part, part of the way um, that, that we accomplish um, continuing to change the landscape, con- you know, continuing to change the narrative. Mm-hmm. Yeah, white supremacy hurts us all. Um, hurts us all, obviously, in different ways. Let's let's be clear, but it, it ultimately hurts us all from from a place of humanity, from a place of of, of heart and love, and and all the things that we are supposed to um, to have within. Thank you. I, I didn't know about a lot of those efforts in Brooklyn, so that was really good to hear. Because oftentimes we have the lament. Right. But we don't we don't know what's actually happening in some of the places on the ground. So that's really encouraging. I, I can both lament right. and celebrate the victories that, that occur. Please, again, for all of the different um, the, the different locales that are being named and the organizations that are doing good work on the ground, we will include in the resources. And it is important to support this work. Uh, whether right. you, whether you are local and can come in person and get in contact with these people, or whether you are online reading this transcript, however this information gets to you, make your way to support these efforts that are happening. This is this is key and huge, and and can be your starting place to be part of of collective liberation work. Thank you so much. We're gonna uh, close with with Helen. Which is scary, frankly, because you all are remarkable. I mean, this has just been amazing just to even listen to this conversation. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to reflect on the the phrase wanton treachery that was in the Psalms that really kind of stuck home to me is that there's a wantonness about clinging on to the idea when white people cling on to the idea that they need to cling on to white supremacy and privilege. There's a wantonness, there's a deliberateness about it. Um, the most of the work I do is around LGBTQ inclusion in the United Methodist Church. And I, as I thought about this, I thought about the wantonness of people clinging on to a, an interpretation of scripture that reinforces their 
marginalization of um, LGBTQ people in the same way that there are those who cling on to an interpretation of scripture that, that reinforces their marginalization of people of color and people with black and brown bodies. And um, it's a hard thing that needs to be changed. That wantonness that has like, how do we check, you know, that's a, that's a hard thing to change, but it needs to be named. So uh, there are, I live just north of Asheville, North Carolina, and Bahisha, frankly, you're going to be able to speak about this much better than me. Um, I do a lot of travel, and so I'm not as engaged at locally with what's happening as I might be. Um, I have had some uh, opportunity to spend time with people in the surge group in Asheville that I think and to my limited understanding, is doing a pretty good job. But he should jump in if you feel others. But it seems to be a good job of decentering white leadership and centering leadership of people of color, or or, or making that more of a collaborative um, effort. Um, there's also a group called Rural Organizing um, in rural, rural rural rural. I'm not saying it properly. Rural Organizing Against Racism. Uh, which operates locally and does some good work. And um, they're building bridges uh, work that happens in Asheville regularly, um, which does work, uh, anti-racist work as well, and building relationships. Um, So there's some great stuff. I'm not an expert in any of those groups. I just know that the work's happening. I've done, I've sort of, you know, been some things there, but it's good stuff. Um, I also want to draw attention to a group called Many Many Voices. I don't know how many of you are aware of a group called Many, Many Voices, Reverend Cedric Carmen is the leader of that, and they do amazing work uh, in the black church around LGBTQ inclusion and the intersections of those types of oppression. And they've got an event coming up in uh, Charlotte in March, which will be good for people to know about, um, which is just down the road from here. So, so and, and just on a personal level, because I, you know, I struggle with uh, guilt, which, you know, where's the point in that, um, around the degree to which I've engaged in the local work. But um, one of the things I personally try and do is like micro things. <laughs> and one of the micro things I've done is uh, make, make friends with the people who had the Trump signs on their front yard during the election and uh, went down, have befriended them, um, engaged in regular conversation with them sort to gently steer them into different ways of thinking, challenge some thinking. Uh, it's a small thing. It's two people in the neighborhood, right? But um, sometimes maybe that's the things that, you know, can help slowly, slowly shift. The so um, it's been great to be listening to all of you. Oh, my goodness, I'm in awe of what you're doing. Not only in awe of what you're doing, but in awe of, just the knowledge that's in, in this space right now and all of you. It's just fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, thank you, Helen. I'll, I'll piggyback real quick and then we will close. Um, even if we can, I know you, I, I understand traveling a lot. It makes um, some local organizing difficult. So thank you for doing the piece in your neighborhood. I can get you on the mailing list and anyone else in that area for Faith for Justice. Uh, which is led by another one of our contributors, uh, Tammy Forte Logan, and they are doing all types of organizing and respond very quickly to things on the ground. There are a lot of other things that I can put in the resource area so other people can know um, how to get in contact, but um, something that anybody could read in the area, it's available online, it's the state of Black Asheville, and it gets into the very, the percentages and statistics and of what is happening to, to black folks in the Asheville area and how it has gone from, I think it was like 30 to 35% of the population in Asheville was black down to less than 10% 
So now yeah. Asheville is is ten percent ten percent POC, which means a collective of all the spectrums of mm-hmm. black and brown, not even just black. So so a concerted effort has happened to push out a very specific set of people, and it is outlined uh, in that document. Uh, of course, Reverend Barber is from our home state of, of North Carolina, and he's done a lot of for people um, campaign work and repairs of the breach. Um, so it's both, but that's both um, a national effort, effort way to meet some needs, but are are done locally in, in ways that can impact local policy. So we got to um, all kind of stay in in tune with that. And Asheville is able to get away with the narrative that it is this progressive place, but it is really a progressive place for white people. So yes, you can be LGBTQ better in Asheville than you could probably be in some other places, but black and brown skin has not changed the narrative on, on that in any way. It is the opposite of progressive. It is quite oppressive of an environment in Asheville for black folks, and I absolutely reject this progressive narrative that is being given, and the more people perpetuate that and say that, the more they're just saying my privilege is recognized here, and, 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 that, and that's really all. So um, there's a lot, of, a lot of ways to connect there. Thank you for doing that work. Um, I want to thank all of you uh, for coming. Thank you for, um, and not, not just all of you, but everybody that's listening. Thank you for joining us this week, as always, um, for each of these podcasts. The transcript of this episode is going to be available on the Surge website. And when we're saying Surge, that's S-U-R-J, for those that are um, helpful with that. And it will include references, credits, and copyright information, as well as a bunch of resources to support any kind of action or involvement. Next week, we'll be joined by a whole nother set of amazing on-the-ground theologians. So be sure to subscribe to that podcast as well because you don't want to miss an episode. I also want to lift up our call to action uh, nationally, which is to learn about the present-day state-sanctioned killing of black and brown people by law enforcement, corrections officers, and vigilantes. Uh, And we're further asking all our listeners to do something to take action to end it uh, individually and in the communities in which you operate. So you can find out more about that campaign and about Surge in general at showingupforracialjustice.org. Our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. The music you hear throughout this podcast is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding. We are building up a new world. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. Our sound editor this week is Paul Stewart. Thank you, Paul. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. And I am Bahisha Hassan.
Yeah.